I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on the show, we're chatting with David Curry. Dave works as an organizational development lead in the not-for-profit space. He's had a breadth of experience as a change management guru, and we're going to dig into how you navigate change well in the workplace. Enjoy the show. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley. I work in human resources, and I'm hanging out with a couple of people today. Firstly, Emily, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Shell. So I'm Em and I work for a business called Forsyth's Recruitment and HR. And we are stoked. We have Dave Curry here with us today. Dave, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here on Duck and Young Country. And Dave, we are really privileged today to be talking to you about change. Can you tell us a bit about you, a bit about your role, your background? I can. My current role, I work in um, organizational development for a not-for-profit called Samaritans Foundation. So we look after disability services, youth mental health, uh, child, youth and family services as well, and starting to expand into aged care. Uh, I sit on the board of Hunter Homeless Connect, which is an awesome nonprofit which advocates for people at risk of or experiencing homelessness. And on the side, I do a little bit of live music programming and festivals as well. And when it comes to change, so that is what we're here to talk about today, uh, I think what I'd like to highlight is that both in your own, um, I guess, professional career, but also in your day job, so to speak, that's something that the whole change is a constant, um, as they say, is yeah. very relevant too. It is. I like to say that, and I, I should preface that nothing that I'm probably going to talk about today I have come up with or is new. It's just stuff that I'm looking at at the moment or have been reminded of. Uh, so what I would probably say that is change is inevitable, um, but it's not out of our control. And that's good because whenever I, I see change in the workplace, there tends to be this sentiment that you can adopt change when it's within your control, your, you've made the decision to change. But I like what you're saying that it, that it actually isn't out of our control. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So what I would say is we tend, we're, we're really fixed creatures. And I'll talk about this at work or in your relationships or in your personal life as well. You know, we're, we're quite fixed and we believe that this version of ourselves is who we are. We're, we're in a constant change. We're constant works in progress that under this silly belief that we're a finished product. So if you think back to who you were five years ago or 10 years ago, most of us would say we're pretty different to who we were then. But trying to conceptualize that and put yourself forward five or 10 years is much, much harder for us. So we get rigid in where we are. I've re- There's this great book about growth mindset and I feel like it's kind of that similar concept hey, of yeah. like fixed mindset and the barriers in that and then what does it mean to have a growth mindset and I suppose be receptive towards change and, and that, that we're always works in progress. Yeah. And being intentional about it. I know that's the second time I've used the word intentional. 
But I, I really believe that. So there, there are always things within our locus of control or with things that we can control and things outside it. But I just get to control what I can. What happens when there is that change that's going on around you and it starts to feel out of control? Because I think that's where things get interesting. It's one thing to make a decision within yourself to go, you know what, I can recognize that I'm not the same person now as I was five or 10 years ago. And I'd like to do a few things that mean that in another five years, I've grown and I've developed. But it's a whole different bag of tricks and a whole different feeling typically when that change is happening around you. And some people might even say, it feels like the change is happening to me. It's a really interesting concept. And I feel like a lot of, in change management, we call those stinky changes. So a stinky change is a thing that is being enforced on me that I didn't have a say in and I don't particularly agree with or like. But if I'm in a position of leadership, I might be asked to endorse and lead that change. Or I might just be asked to shift with it and make the change myself. Uh, What I would probably say around that is where we affix a label to ourselves, we kind of get stuck. Um, So for example, my job is changing now and it's going to involve me leading a team of people. I don't love people management. I'm not a people manager. You're not the first person to say that on this podcast. (laughs) Or the first, and and even people managers, I'm not sure how much they like being people managers. I've, I've I've confessed that same truth for me. And, and, you know, psychologists will tell that when we affix a label, it doesn't leave much wiggle room for growth and we stop seeing alternatives. So if we can become a little bit more mindful to that, I think then what is within our sphere of control, even in the context of a broader change that we didn't elect or didn't choose, we're in control of the way we react and what we do within that. And so in terms of what you see in the workplace and in the organisations that you've kind of been a part of in your change management roles, what benefit does change have on us as employees or in our organisations? And is it typically in those kinds of for-profit spheres or is it across the board? I think it's across the board. Yeah. So I, I look at it in the professional and the personal context is probably the same, that it's much easier for us to default to where we are in the present than to try and imagine a different future. But we know that change or you know, change is inevitable and that it's always happening regardless of whether I choose to be intentional about it or not. So the position I take is why not be intentional about it if we know it's going to be happening regardless. And that takes away that passivity that you described before that I, I, I move from this, well, change is happening to me, life is happening to me. That's a really passive way of, of viewing and of communicating rather than kind of asserting that this is a situation that's happening and here's how I'm going to respond to it. Knowing that it's going to happen, whether I kick and scream or whether I go with it. And I feel like if you're intentional, the benefit that you then get out of that is you're actually maybe maximizing opportunities or you're putting yourself in a position where it might not be a 10 out of 10 uh, change for you, but you're getting an eight out of 10. Whereas if you were passive, you might only achieve a four out of 10 in regards to what actually comes from that. Yeah. And I mean, being intentional is so important in this space, but Dave, how do you actually be intentional around change? And and I'm just thinking about 2020, like this is the year of just un- like change that's been out of our control and yeah. not not good change, right? Like COVID's been just wild, full-on, crazy, devastating, all at the same time. 
when there's a change happening to us, how can we be intentional in our response? I can only share what works for me. Yeah. And what works for me has come from kind of two streams that have merged from two different people. So I have a professional mentor and I have a psychologist that I speak to. And those two people will say to me, no matter what problem I kind of present them with, one says, what is it you want to be doing in five years? And one says, how is it that you want to be feeling in five years? Wow. And I can try and marry those two things up and then reverse engineer it and say, well, is what I'm doing now contributing to that goal or at least moving me down the path? So I'll give you an example from my own perspective, would say that if I said to my psychologist, in five years, I want to be a little bit more relaxed and have some more spare time uh, in my personal life. If I'm then presented with, do I want to go back and study a master's degree on top of working a couple of jobs right now, that might help reframe that decision. Is it moving me towards how I'm likely to want to feel or want to do? That's so good. I love so much of what you've just said of the combination of what do you want to do, but how do you want to feel? Yeah. So often I think in work stuff, we forget the feeling aspect of it. Yeah. And like your behavior in this moment is shaped by your view of your own future. That's what I mean by being intentional. So if I can imagine, and that can change, but if I can imagine what I think my own future might look like, then my behavior in the present can reflect that. And that gives me some agency and some choice, even in the broader context of a restructure I don't agree with, a pandemic that I can't control, other things, you know, that are outside my immediate control. That's what I come back to. And that's what works for me. What would you say, Dave, the characteristics that you've observed as a change manager in people who, whether you call it a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, or you simply say, this person seems to handle change well and maximize the benefit of that for themselves versus somebody who doesn't handle it well and is more of a passenger or even a resistor to change? What would be the difference in characteristics that you could identify? It's a really good question. Firstly, I think people that seek to understand more. So we're all resistant to change by nature, by design. Predictable is safe. Mm. So the people who, when first hearing about a change, might say, help me understand that more. Tell me more about this. What could it mean for that? Rather than the people who are immediately kind of have the defenses up and are looking for the immediate impact, the negative impacts and the negative fallout. I don't know whether, do we call that agility? Bit of kind of agility in our mindset. And if you're looking at it in a professional context, it might say, what are the opportunities going to be for me? My, and again, this is where I come back to that labeling thing. So when we label ourselves, it doesn't leave a heap of wiggle room. And you two have talked before about job security versus career security, right? And I love that because if I take a career security mindset, I can say that let's put the label aside for a moment. What are the functions of this change? What is it going to mean for me? Do I have to shift just even a little bit to find an opportunity? Yeah. I am quite an analytical person. So I tend to, when there's a change that's come up, uh, look at it in terms of, you know, what are all the things that could go wrong? <laughs> And so that's kind of my first frame of reference. How much do you think optimism plays a part? Because I love what you're saying of those people that can ask the questions and put aside their own personal response and go, help me to understand this more. 
Is that kind of traits that people exhibit or are there behaviours that we actually just need to start to adopt? So I think you can practice it. I think you can, and again, being intentional, you, you can practice that. Uh, and even if you're in a group of, of people, you can be the one to move a group of people down that line of thinking. Oh, this is the, yeah, we should talk about that, but we can come back to it. Yeah, sure. I think it is a, a, it can be a trait and a learned behaviour. So that curiosity, that curious inquiry can be a really positive thing. I think a bit of... Uh, agility and by that I mean willing to consider possibilities and sit with the discomfort for a while without drawing a conclusion. Let's see where this lands before I assume the worst because we don't know what's going to, you know, we we might not know where all the the pieces are falling yet. But also preparing yourself, you're an analytical person, you can quickly say here's three likely outcomes. Do I have a plan for each of those? That, That could be an approach too. And again, just knowing you have agency and you have control over uh, or you've got a plan no matter which outcome can give you a bit more security to kind of manage your own feelings a bit better. And Dave, you've said you have agency a couple of times and I love that one of the things Em and I talk about just, you know, when we catch up is (laughs) you you have options. Like people sometimes forget that they have options. They have this element of of control, even in situations that maybe they didn't make the decisions on. For you, when you're kind of leading teams or leading people through change, what are the things that you're encouraging them to do? I'm encouraging them to understand the reason for the change and at the same time hold the risk of not changing. So just to be pragmatic and, re- and realistic about what that means, that's, that doesn't mean threatening people. That means just having a good understanding of natural consequences. Um, so the reason for the change and then the risk of not changing is the first place I'd go. Do you have an example, maybe a practical example, an example uh, from a friend of yours perhaps that you can use to explain what you mean by that? It's a great question. A really recent example I might give is if we look at COVID and so this illness comes out of the blue um, and all of a sudden we're asked to sanitize our hands and wear masks, which is not something that we generally do. And a portion of the population adopts that right away. A portion of the population uh, asks logical questions and waits for evidence. And then a portion of the population finds ways to flat out refuse to engage with it. And that's not unusual in in any change. But the information that we saw with various effectiveness around the world came out and says, hey, we need you to change what you were doing. We need you to now wear these masks and and rub this lotion on your hands wherever you go. Why is it that we need you to do it? Because we have this illness, we don't understand how it spreads and we think this is likely. What's the risk of not doing that? You will infect yourself, you will infect your loved ones, we will have to shut down a city and restrict where you go. That's an extreme example, but that tells people here's a reason for the change and here's the risk of not change, not adopting that change. But if we see even with something as uh, compelling as a pandemic, that not all of the population is bought into that change. And they don't need to be. We just need most of the people to do most of the thing most of the time. In organisations, would it be your opinion that where there is change and particularly significant change it's driven by a desire for that business to increase their profits or can there be other reasons organisationally that 
drive change. So I love, you know, the COVID example is a great one and we're talking there about health. Um, you know, you could potentially say there's economical reasons as well and um, in the need to make that change. I guess if we bring it back to an organisation, I'm just interested in your perspective because we do hear um, feedback from time to time where it's like, oh, the organisation only wants to make this change so that they can make more money. Um, and I guess I'm just looking to either bust that myth or confirm. I'm not sure that I agree with it, but even if we took it to be true, what difference would it make? And I wonder I wonder if that's about our perception of the reason for the change uh, somehow changes our willingness to take it on board. So if I feel that the change is being made for altruistic reasons, I'm more likely to engage with it. If I feel like it's for commercial and profit reason, I'm less likely because I'm not seeing the benefit of that. Again, I would say that's an intentional mindset you can take. And we all work in business. I work in a, the not-for-profit sector, but we still have a fiscal responsibility to the communities that we serve, to the funding bodies that provide for us to acquit those funds in a really responsible way. So some decisions will be commercial. I think other decisions that are structural might be based on performance that's not necessarily like with a commercial underline. So speaking of structural change. Yes. That's a really common and difficult change that we experience in our career and in business. And I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying most people will go through some kind of redundancy process three times uh, in their career. And so that speaks to the frequency with which we will see a restructure. Now restructures are done by leadership in the business and often at completely out of our control. We might get to contribute to them in some way in consultation, but that's about it. What would you be like, what's your advice for our listeners today if they're navigating that type of change? It's it's very difficult emotionally, there's risks involved, financial, all that kind of stuff. What is some advice from you, Dave, around how to how to get through that type of change? It's a really hard one. My first restructure redundancy, I was 26 and I'd worked in that same organization for seven years, kind of straight out of school. What I struggled with the most there, to be honest with you, was how it impacted my sense of identity and I hadn't expected it to uh, work out how closely my identity was wrapped up with my professional life. So I think it can be yeah, an enormously difficult. I would say if, if that's a situation you're going through now, I was lucky and had exceptional leadership, uh, really selfless leadership through that process. Others were not so fortunate, but what we all did have access to were the same resources and then seeking seeking out other voices outside of the people who are being impacted I think is really important too because we all get into an echo chamber particularly within you know within an organizational change so seeking out some voices that sit that care about you but sit outside of that perspective might be really helpful too just to helping you clarify your options and we'll use the term agency again, handing you back some agency to say, what is it that you are in control of in a situation where it feels like the pieces are falling around you? I love that of getting that outside voice. And we've I've seen a lot over my time in HR where you, it's a, it's such a difficult process and we don't want to understate the difficulty of going through it's a horrible. restructure. It's horrible. And, and it is, I love what you're saying about identity and that is a massive issue and factor at work. And I think it is a real challenge for people. I think the echo chamber is really unhealthy in in a change, especially if it's this negative feedback loop. What's your thoughts, Em, even on that around 
how do you kind of, I suppose, get get some diversity of thought and also recognise when you're in that negative feedback loop? It's so tricky because we as humans feel safer. We feel so much more comfortable when somebody else is supporting what we already think. Uh, And that's that sense of validation. It's that sense of justification. It's that sense of I'm not alone. I have these thoughts and somebody else is saying they're fair thoughts to have, they're the right thoughts to have and and they're feeding and watering and nurturing, nurturing those thoughts. And I don't know the exact number, but there is research out there that shows it takes several more positive thoughts to overcome one negative thought. And so if that gets a life of its own, you're in strife. And then the ripple effect of that through an organisation, it actually, it impacts others and then it also reverberates back and it will make your experience more difficult because you're essentially creating this force field around yourself that you need to break out of. It's that echo chamber that you need to break out of. And it's taking me back to, um, Dave, a comment you made earlier that I said, oh, yes, let's go and explore that, which is how can an individual, regardless of whether they're a leader or not, in an organisation actually have a really positive impact and create, um, I guess, that ripple effect in a way that, that leads through the change and that does the opposite of what we've just described. So I'd be interested if I can pick you back up there and, and maybe we flip this because we absolutely all agree when you create a negative echo chamber, it's very easy uh, and it's, it's absolutely not going to serve anybody well. It's much harder to create a more positive echo chamber, but it can be done. It was nice to hear you say it can be done. How? <laughs> I, I think it can be done and I think you've touched on some really interesting ways. So what I heard you say was managing boundaries. And I think whether that's in a relationship or in a professional context, in a personal context to say, this is the amount that I'm willing to invest because that solidarity, that feeling of being unified in a community that you can identify with is really important and is a valid part of getting through it. But you need to manage that boundary to know how far you're willing to indulge and engage in it. And as Shelley said before, then seek the outside voice. Is there a part of, is there a perspective that I'm not getting here because I'm right in the vortex? Just having the awareness to ask that question, I think can be, can be really powerful. And what we get around us, like we said before, if your identity is really rooted in your, in the past, and even if the past was yesterday, it can be so hard to shift from there. The people that I see engage with these, and I'll, I worked with a organization recently who went through a pretty major restructure brought on by COVID, about 30% of the staff turned over in a week and it's it's brutal brutal Mm. really emotionally impacted people as well as obviously finite you know economically impacted people and for those that remained there was almost a little bit of survivor's guilt why that department went and not mine or why her and not me all of that sort of a thing so the ripple effect to the morale of the others who remain in their roles was severely impacted the people that i saw emerged the best and i think i used the term uh sitting with the discomfort earlier so those who didn't immediately seek to strike back but just sat with it to process their feelings without bringing anyone else down around them seem to fare better in the long term even better again were the people that empathized and were emotionally available to a point to help their colleagues out but didn't get drawn right down and into it um, and kind of were assertive 
around those boundaries as well that said, hey, here's a level of support that I can offer you, but here is a job that I have to do over here and actually I can see some opportunity to pivot. And I'm not saying we verbalize that, but those are the people who emerge from the change much better than some others. I think we take a break. I would love to come back and actually use you while we've got you, Dave, to understand what goes on on the other side. So if you're in a leadership role, you're in a change manager role, what do you know about change that maybe an employee doesn't know uh, that might give us some clues into how better to understand change that happens in an organisation? Sounds good. Let's talk then. Money, property, careers, health, small business. We love learning how to do all of these well so we can live our best life. That's why we've made podcasts focused on a variety of topics. Check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, Gen Z Money, and You To Me, You To You, You To Us, which is just about sexual and reproductive health. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, the underbelly of change is what we are going to explore. So this is, I guess, an opportunity I'm looking to take where I've got this HR person sitting to one side of me, a change manager sitting to the other side. And I feel like there's an experience as an employee sometimes where change does feel all of a sudden and it feels like, wow, I didn't see that coming or I feel like something's going on, there's, you know, closed doors or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, the restructure's announced if we use continue to use that example. It's difficult for me to even know what questions to ask here, but I'm, I'm trying to go behind the scenes and do a tour of what is happening when leaders of a business, change managers or HR are putting a plan in place or coming up with a plan? Is it something that happens in 24 hours or is it something that takes longer? When it's done well. <laughs> we should actually, that's a good point. We should say we're speaking to when it's done well. I'll speak to when it's done well and when the opportunity is there. Like there's some things that, that force an organisation to make changes very quickly. But having been on the other side of it, you know, impacted by a change, it feels like a bad breakup. And the thing about a breakup is it's always more of a surprise to one person than the other, right? Yeah. Someone has sat with it and worked through stuff and talked to friends and gotten to a point where they have permission to end a relationship and the other person gets slapped in the face where, you know, oh, I thought this is a surprise to me. I thought Can, you were the one. I thought you were the one. Can we stop and you were going to meet my mother or whatever. <laughs> um, so that's how I kind of liken it. You get So your first reaction is that shell shock in it and it can be really emotional. When it is done well, the organization will have done a whole 
bunch of work behind the scenes that says who are the people that are likely to be impacted by the change and to what degree. And so we understand the different parts of the business through their eyes about what the change means for them. So if an example is your HR business is rolling out a new piece of software, that might be a technological change at the top level. But for everyone else in the business, it might mean that my job takes 15 minutes longer every morning. I need to learn to navigate this new system. I need to learn to use a Mac when I've only ever used a PC and all of our forms are changing. So it's actually a huge you know, change rather than just saying, hey, we got everyone Macs and this new system. So we understand who's being impacted and to what extent. And then, you know, we'd ideally be asking who else and who else and who else haven't we thought about. Speaking then to the people who are likely to be impacted by the change, speaking to some representatives from those teams and saying, hey, tell me more about your job. If this is the thing we were going to do, how would it actually impact you day to day? Let's walk through it together. And what resources will you require to help you make that change and make that adjustment? What support will you need? And how will we reinforce that over time? Because we don't expect just to tell you about it once and walk away and it is done. So when it's done really well, that's the kind of process we go to. And when it's done really well, so let's assume in this scenario that we've, we've the business has done the comms really well, they've prepped everyone, they've given them the training on how to use Mac, all that stuff. On the change journey, and this is what I find really hard because I, li- I think I like change, yeah. but I always find that I get surprised by the dip of disappointment. Like I'm like, oh, I, I was really on board with this, but I'm still disappointed or I've still got – how do you kind of navigate that of going – oh, the, yeah, the Mac it is a bit harder to use and I am a bit disappointed even though I had my training and I thought this was really cool and, I, and the Mac looks a bit better than a Dell, you know, because mm. we know that it does. <laughs> <laughs> what, t- tell me, how do you, what do you do in the different disappointment? How do you help people? I would try, can I answer that in two ways? First, you talked about comms and training and I think a lot of the time change gets reduced and I don't mean any disrespect to comms or training because they are really important elements, but they are just elements of understanding and leading people through the change. And the comms part as well, I see it repeated so often in projects that go off the rails and you'll say, show me your communications. And they'll say, but we told them here and we told them there and we told them there. Telling isn't communicating, really. I mean, I know at home with my wife, communicating doesn't feel like telling or being told. Communication is an exchange of information and ideas over time to reach a point where you have consent to move forward. You might not have consensus, but you've got consent. Um, That is a really good distinction between consensus and consent. You don't need – it's unrealistic to expect everyone to get on board with that Mac computer because some of us are rusted on PC users. (laughs) But we might get to a point where we agree that for this business at this time, I'm willing to make that adjustment because I understand the reason for the change and the risk of not changing. And I've got the tools to support me along the way. And the training that you mentioned as well has been adequate yeah. and not just a dump and run. So that's the first thing I wanted to answer. And, and so the difference between, just before you move on, the difference between communicating and telling. Can we just pause there for a sec? Yeah. When you're in your role, what are you seeing as communicating as opposed to because because I'd sit on the kind of business side and we'll do the comms plan right yes. so we've got I've done my comms plan I've got my script together of what we're going to communicate and push out 
What are you seeing is different about that dialogue? That is it two-way dialogue? What does it look like? And I this is not to minimize a comms plan because you need a really thorough comms plan. Yeah. My view would be bring the people in who are likely to be impacted by that change. Let's get a representative sample of them in and almost do um almost like a focus group. But test their understanding of it. You can you can do that on a really small scale. What it also does is then that starts to create buy-in and ownership that you push back out into different parts of the business that those people feel that they are they have been engaged and consulted. Just that act, people are already starting to come on board whether or not they realize it. We don't often resist change as much as we resist coercion, right? So if I feel like this has been installed on me and, and I'm being coerced or told, I'm indignant. I'm going to dig in because I'm a toddler really. But if I feel like I've had some agency and some control, maybe even some input into how that's being shaped, I'm much more likely to be on board with the change and I'm much more likely then to try and bring some of my peers along. Yeah, right. So you said, and I cut you off and now I feel like I I hope I didn't get in in to disrupt your flow, but you said there's two things that'll help us navigate the dip of disappointment. And you said the first one, obviously we've talked about that communications side of it. What... The second one, and it links very closely to the communication side. So often when we're trying to do the very early stages of selling the change, um, we're trying to make people aware of the change. We're trying to build desire for the change. We tend, it's like Instagram. It's a very curated highlights reel of what the change is going to do and promise (laughs) and look like. Glossy. It's very glossy. glossy. And we really highlight the benefits because we want people to buy into it. Yeah. And we probably skim over or we're not realistic about some of the challenges. And so then we have what you call the the dip of disappointment or the trough of disillusionment or all these other terms, which basically says the thing doesn't work like you said it was going to work. This is much harder than we were led to believe. Um, So I think being realistic in our communication to say to people, hey, this is going to require some work from all of us. There's going to be an adjustment period here. We're going to need to push through it together. But while we do that, we're here to support you. Here's the training. Here's the support. Here's where we're going to work through it together. So I think I would say for change or comms or HR or people in leadership, be realistic and don't oversell. You know, we want the benefits, but let's see under the hood as well. And now I'm really going to put the pressure on to get inside your your heads (laughs) and find out the real deal. What happens when in your roles you're experiencing so you've done change well as I know you would um what happens when you've got people who continue to resist and they just their heels are so dug in and you can't move them what's happening behind the scenes or what strategies and tactics start to play out that maybe as an employee we don't know about or can't identify as easily yeah so I try not to see people as a problem and resistance is a normal part of any change and I know that as a change manager I think I said to you before, I don't need, we don't need everyone to be bought in, but we need most of the people to do most of the thing most of the time. And it keeps that way most of us safe and moving forward. And I look at seatbelts in cars as a way to do this. So we gave people back in the day an adjustment period and said, hey, we'd really like you to adopt this new thing. It's going to keep us all safer. And then one day we just said, wear it or you get a ticket. That was, you know, where kind of where we got to. So I think that's a really good metaphor to say you allow a period of time for people to engage and buy into the change and we reward positively the behavior that we want to see. At some point, if the business decides, we draw a line in the sand and we let people know because we're at work, 
right? It's an active choice to come to work here every day and an ongoing decision you're making. And if as part of that, this is the way we do things, then at some point, this is the way we need to do things. So that in the worst case scenarios would become a performance management issue or a line management issue, but ideally not. Where I would see people rusted on, I try and build a little coalition around them of people who might have influence with them and it might be a peer or a subordinate or someone superior and we say, hey, you've got a good relationship with Shelley. I'm hoping, Em, that you could do me a chat and have, you know, have a talk with her and just see if there's anything that's in the way that we don't know about for her. Just fix her up. Just fix her <laughs> up. She's really weird. None of us can deal with her. Yeah, we've all been talking about her behind uh, her back and we've decided. Uh, yeah, that's it. Hi, the mate. Other, the other thing that you, we sometimes try and do, and I would try and understand the motivation for that person's behavior. Like all behavior is kind of legitimate and is telling me about a need. And I just need that person to choose a safer or better behavior to express that need. And if it is, hey, I'm really frustrated or, hey, I'm really scared or, hey, I've, I've seen this happen eight times before and I don't think you're going to make it work because I'm not being heard. You know, try and try and just dig a little bit deeper and then we can sit on the bench together and look at the problem and they can help me solve it. And I, I think that's great, Dave, in terms of people can flip what you've just said and so the business can seek to understand those people who are resisting change. But if you're in a change journey at the moment, be it there's all grease structure or you've got the MacBook and you wish you had the PC, whatever that change is, you can do your own self-analysis and diagnosis of what is the driver for me right now? Why am I resistant towards this change? That involves a fair bit of self-awareness and reflection and I would encourage everyone to practice it because if you can start practicing that at work you can do it at home and you can do it in whatever circles you move in and it's a really healthy thing and understanding yourself and employers love uh, employees who are self-aware self-awareness is my number one like wish list item criteria just key to success totally obsessed and it. then being able to communicate that in an assertive way that says, hey, I'm really, I'm having a hard time with this because I'm scared or because I'm frustrated or because I don't feel heard. What I need to help me is this. So, and then an HR or an employer or someone can probably help you get that. So let's talk about that then. How do you do that conversation? Because that's daunting for people. It's vulnerable. It is. There's a level of authenticity. Firstly, we need to be self-aware enough to go, I'm scared, but... How would you encourage people to do that type of conversation, Dave? I would encourage them to do it in a way that I've heard you encourage them to do it on this podcast in the past. And I think it works really well. I've used the term assertive. And I've got to say this. I think assertiveness sometimes gets tainted as being a dirty word. Yes. And I think my experience as a man, I can only speak from that because I know that when I have seen women in positions equal to me exhibit the same behaviors, that is taken very differently. And that's a topic for another podcast and isn't great Yeah, because women hold that double bind around assertiveness, which is horribly unfair. And there's a lot of research that backs that up. So if we think about earlier in the podcast, we talk about being really passive. Passive seeks to blame. Passive, oh, woe is me. Passive, this is all happening to me and there's nothing I can do. On the other end of that, we've got the hot and heavy people really aggressive and I'm going to fight you. In the middle is an assertiveness that generally starts with I. I am worried, Shelley. I am feeling unsafe. I am scared. Or So I'd say an assertive conversation starts with I. 
I'm not asking you to solve this for me, but I need you to have some information. Can we sit with this? Mm. And I've spoken with you in the past many times, Dave, and you've said, I think it's time for a frank and fearless conversation. And I really frank like that fearless. as well. Yeah. yeah. Frank and fearless doesn't mean that we stop being polite or that we get aggressive and make others feel uncomfortable, but it says that I'm going to have an open conversation with you. I'm going to ask permission to do that first, probably. And I'm going to ask if now is a good time to do that, probably, because that would be considerate. Yeah. And say, hey, here's some things I would like you to know and hold. We don't have to solve it today. But as my manager or as my peer, I would just like you to have this information. And I think people respond really well to that. We haven't used this word yet today in the conversation, but it keeps coming back into my mind as you're talking. And it's the word patience. There's so much of what we've discussed where there's a slowness to it. There's a, a, an acceptance that things are not instant. And so I would like to add that if I could throw an ingredient in the mix for dealing with change, it would be an element of patience as I well. Mm. I love that when you have those conversations and there is an element of patience, um, you don't need a solution, but you do have a conversation to say, this is where I'm at. You're inviting someone to do the journey with you of change. And especially if it's your manager, because they're the person who's saying, I'm, I'm nervous about this change because I'm worried what it means for my job or whatever. You're inviting someone in a different, they're not in your echo chamber necessarily. They're not your peers saying, yeah, we all bloody hate the P, the max as well. Like, so I love that that brings that perspective in, but there's the patience of walking that journey out. Like you eventually will get through that dip of disappointment if you have enough of those conversations along the way. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely with you. So in closing, or for our listeners, if you were to provide that final piece of advice or that one word of wisdom that they can do either now or in the future to better navigate change in their workplace. And we like to get pretty pragmatic at this point. What would that be? I'll go back to where we started, which was spend some time thinking about your future self. How do you want to feel and what do you want to be doing? And use that to guide your behavior now. Dave, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. As you said, it's so intentional for you when you do choose to do something, whatever that might be. And so it just means so much that you chose to do this today. Thank you. It's a privilege to come on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, I this is probably a little bit left field, but you have a bit of a muso part of your life. Yeah. Is it worth giving a plug to bad vibes. I just feel like we've got a bit of a an audience here and I know you do good work and you give up a lot of your time to help other people. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about Bad Vibes and where we can find out more? Oh, sure. Uh, so Bad Vibrations, we started in 2013. We do small live music events and small festivals. Primarily they have been in Sydney and Melbourne, but we'll be starting some stuff off in Newcastle um, from November, which is really exciting. And we I work with an excellent person named Jamie. She lives in Sydney around programming and basically we had a look and said hey we think that there's a bunch of stuff that goes on at music festivals which is really great and there's a bunch of other stuff that isn't so good so how can we fix stuff around representation around access and inclusion and safety at live music events and those are the things that we focus on as well as programming rad live music trippy visuals installations and uh, put on really cool events and you're on Instagram is that where we could look you up Instagram 
I should know the handle. I want to say Bad Vibes AU. Sounds about right. That sounds about yeah, right. Yeah, I'm a follower. Uh, and so thank you so much. Uh, I love everything that you do and, and all of your wisdom. And we really appreciate, again, you taking the time to hang out. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thanks so much, Dave. And if you're listening on Apple, why don't you subscribe? We'd love if you could give us a five-star uh, rating and review. Thanks for hanging out. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.